Welcome to the second reading podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of June 20th. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas. And I'm joined by my colleague, Josh Blank. And at the moment, I'm trying really hard, Josh, to just, I'm realizing that whenever we do this introduction, I want to start by impersonating one of the people in the intro. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's a good idea, and I haven't done it, but I just felt like I needed to share that. You do a mean Pete Laney. <laughs> well, it's kind of do rigor. You have to do a Pete Laney if you are if you follow Texas politics for a while. Go look up Pete Laney. <laughs> so today, we'll talk about two contrasting sets of political events that took place in Texas recently, the state convention of the Texas Democratic Party in San Antonio, and the visit of the presumptive Republican nominee, Mr. Donald Trump, to Texas last week. So let's start with the, with the state convention of the, frankly, beleaguered Texas Democratic Party. First sentence, and we're already picking on them. Oh. It's almost too easy to start by mentioning that if you blinked, you missed it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of, I mean, again, I'm we follow politics relatively closely, and I knew this was coming up, and I, you know, attuned to these things. And even so, it was just, it was so fast. Was there, and it was gone. Yeah, so let's let's talk. I guess we should backtrack a little bit and talk about, and, and we've done this a little bit when we talked about the Republican convention, but talk a little bit about what these conventions are about, what they're supposed to be doing. Right, and, and basic, in short, you know, they decide on the platform for the state party. They might determine, you know, what rules the party's going to operate by and whether they want to change any. There's a lot of meetings. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the one time when people, especially in a place like Texas, it's not like the meeting of the Rhode Island Democratic Party where... You know, everybody can can just get together and then drive 20 minutes home. Right. right. I mean, presumably with telephones and the Internet, they could just talk and meet and those kinds of things. But that's where the other piece of this comes into play, which is that informally, there's just a lot of networking that goes on in these things. This is where Democrats in San Antonio get to meet the people in Houston and Dallas and, to a lesser extent, Midland. And, and what we call politicking. I mean, they're talking about the direction of the party. People are talking about the candidates they like and there there is a lot of inner uh internal kind of team play that goes on um between different factions groups cliques if you will in the party but for people not in the party it's primarily seen as as a media event right right and and that's anymore that's our ex for better or for worse i think that's our expectation so we started off by being kind of mean about you know it came and it went and part of that was that it really didn't last very long. No, it was only like a day and a yeah, half. Yeah, it was you know, a couple day. days being generous, I think. Um, it's really, and, it was a long evening. <laughs> well, one, as it turned out, one of them was a particularly long evening, and we'll get to that. There were two things really front and center to the, to the extent that this was potentially a, a positive, shall we say, media event for the Democrats, right? So the first thing was uh, all this talk about Donald Trump and whether Donald Trump is going to hurt Republicans even in... Republican states like Texas did seem to prevent something of an opportunity for Texas Democrats to grab at least local media coverage in various markets in Texas and say, 
you know, we're here to take on Donald Trump. There's blood in the water. Here's why Republicans or independents or the world should take a second look at us, even though we haven't won an election in decades here in right, Texas, right. statewide if, election. If nothing else, a strong, unified, well-delivered message as to why Texas Democrats are a viable alternative to the politics that Trump is espousing, even if it's not super well-received in Texas because of Texas's sort of generally Republican and conservative leanings, would still be a win for the Texas Democrats. They don't get a lot of opportunities. Remember, they don't have the governorship. They don't have the lieutenant governorship. They can't go out and send a statewide Democrat out and get a bunch of media coverage. This is a chance for them to to actually, you know, take this on and maybe, you know, get a, a small win. Yeah, and they actually had a little bit of a hook for this. We talked last week or the week before about uh, Hillary Clinton having done an interview in New York Magazine and, you know, letting loose with this trial balloon. And in, in fairness, as we said, I think at the time, it wasn't too much more than that. But nonetheless, the national Democratic, you know, the presidential candidate did make news by saying that, you know, she was going to fight for Texas. And you'd have thought they would have they would have they would have been a little more keyed up on that. Yeah. I'll just add to that real quick. I mean, historically, the media does want to hook on to a competitive Texas. Yeah, you they gotta, they're looking for it. And, and I love all our friends in the media, but you got to give them a hook. Yeah. You got to yeah, help yeah, them out. Yeah, yeah, do some work. So that do, was do some work. So that was them. one of the two things going on from the media event per se. What was the second? And so the other thing then was Julian Castro, former former mayor of San Antonio, now the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development for the Obama administration, one of twin brothers. His twin brother is a congressman from from San Antonio. Julian Castro was the keynote speaker at the convention, and one of the reasons he got that job, other than the buzz around him as a national political figure, as somebody who's graduated from city-level politics and state politics to the national level, but there's been a lot of speculation for you know, really years now right. that he would be a viable presidential or vice presidential candidate for Hillary Clinton. Right. As, as, a, as a young rising star Hispanic from a state that the Democrats would like to make competitive, it just the the math adds up really Yeah. And he, and he has, you know, and he has, you know, he, there's a lot of things that are positive. He's got a great story. He's got this twin brother and they, they're very good at telling stories of twin brother hijinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, their mom was a kind of early generation a Mexican-American activist in San Antonio. They have a little bit of a of a rags-to-riches story, went to Harvard, et cetera, et cetera. Like Harvard and, did they go to different, one go to Harvard and one go to Yale or something, or one go to Harvard and one go to Stanford? It's something amazing. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I think one went to Harvard and one went to Stanford, and I honestly can't remember which one went to which. They're twins. Google it. It's yeah, fine. they're twins, and, and they probably switched places while they were doing it anyway. Definitely. So, um, so all that said, uh, how did this turn out for the Democrats? Well, that was just me this is where i feel like like we need one of those little horns or something um in post yeah so so let's let's talk about these things and really what happened we really should start with the second thing that we were expecting so you know overall what we would say is that the democratic party demonstrated really poor media ability and really poor organizational ability uh, in the way that they pulled this off. And it, it kind of went south almost from the beginning. Or so, before it even started. Really. The di- so I, about the day of Castro's big speech, uh, he's doing an interview with a state reporter. I think he's doing, I think it, I think the first place this came out was an interview with Peggy Fecak from the San Antonio Express News. Um, and he's being asked about the vice presidential potential. And he's he begins the response by being just kind of demure in the way that we expect people to say, oh, shucks. Yeah, that's But nice. then Peggy, who we know, we've worked with, is a very good reporter, kind of says, well, do you know that you're being vetted? 
and he basically has to say no. And she follows up, would you know if you were being vetted? And he said, well, yeah. So basically, he announced that he wasn't being vetted for the vice presidential spot. So one of the big points of buildup for him being the keynote speaker was deflated before he even got to the stage. Right. And worse and worse yet, you know, most of the news coming out of the convention, if you will, was that Castro was not a VP, was not a likely VP pick anymore. Instead of anything about the Democrats, let's say Democratic Party, it was about this big deflation of Democratic hopes, which right. they didn't need. And so on top of that, the the organization of the convention itself was apparently pretty poorly executed, even the night that Castro was going to speak. Everybody ran late. He was he was going to be way late it was in the over, evening. It was overbooked to begin with. Yeah. People were leaving. They ran long. They changed it. And so in the end, he spoke to about a half full convention hall by most accounts. And he spoke as somebody whose upward mobility had been thwarted, you know, in, in newspapers across the country right. you know, it, prior to his appearing. It, it was so it was so badly organized that basically they had to move him up 10 speaking spots because they were, first of all, running so late. But but the delegates were leaving. I mean, right. they were they were just leaving in mass, and they were like, "We need to get this guy out here now." And of course, it didn't stop them from leaving because what was the reason at this point? And another reporter that we we work with a lot and we like, Jonathan Tylove of the Austin American Statesman, did a nice blow by blow in his usual multimedia manner with tweets and videos and stuff of this. Um, so you know, if you're interested in this, go go have a look at, at Jonathan's piece. I think it was uh, I think it was Saturday or Sunday. Um, uh, doesn't really matter when it was because it's on the internet. Um, so the story coming out of the convention was not the Democrats are here to, you know, st- you know, to take advantage of Donald Trump and and they there might be a leading Texas Democrat on the ballot. It was there will definitely not be a Texas Democrat on the ballot, at least not this one. And the Texas Democratic Party is, as as is often the case, it seems to be lately, kind of in disarray. Yeah, and I mean, on the one hand, it's a little unfair. You know, I think, you know, there's a there's a tendency to want to read into these conventions, you know, and the platforms and the goings on as being somehow really meaningful. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of reasons that it's not super meaningful, you know, right. in any real sense. But there is sort of an aspect of, you know, you look at this and you think, you know, the Democratic Party is described often as beleaguered, you know, and many other. We, in fact, just did that. Which we just did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, the thing is, you do say, like, here you've got this these, this few days where you know you've got media coverage, you have control over the message, you have the ability to try to actually shape what the coverage of your party and your, and your uh, and, you know, and your um, convention uh, is in the state. It's one of the rare chances to actually get in front of this audience. And it's just such a wild swing and a miss. It makes you, it does make you say, well, how are they supposed to organize Credible statewide campaigns that they can't organize a one-day meeting. Yeah, I went. To, I went to look for a video of Castro's speech just to give him some love and play an audio excerpt. And in googling it, I couldn't find the speech, but I did find, in part, because I'm I'm convinced it must be there somewhere. It's at be least somewhere, a cell, somebody's cell phone on YouTube. Search you, but every time you go to search it, it's just all buried in the fact that you know Castro let on that. He wasn't going to be that he wasn't being vetted to be the VP. So, okay, this is just gets sad. Um, But but it does, you know, for 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 those of you that that are studying politics, shall we say, um, this does give you a sense of what we mean when we're talking about the party as organization. You know, parties have capacities to do things and to do them well or to not do them well, and it's hard not to look at this and see it as an indication of 
just how weak the, the Democratic Party organization is. Now, given that, the other thing we want to talk about today pointed to some interesting aspects of the other major party, the Republican Party in Texas, and that came with Donald Trump's visit to Texas roughly on the same days as the Democratic Convention. They kind of took place at the same time. So uh, a lot of people, I think, early on asked the question, you know, why would Trump visit Texas to begin with? It's a Republican state. Uh, There's, you know, as we're seeing, the opposition is pretty weak. We haven't seen a, a competitive presidential candidate in a long time. And yet here's Donald Trump spending a couple of days here doing four or five events, including big public events in a couple of big cities. Why do this? Well, I mean, so the, the first and kind of most crass but true and obvious one is that Texas is, is like the campaign ATM for national politicians. For both parties. For both parties, exactly. I mean, we mentioned Hillary Clinton mentioned uh, discussing Texas as a battleground state uh, in an interview in New York Magazine a few weeks ago. And, you know, why would she do that? Well, she's certainly not going to spend a bunch of her resources in Houston, because it's super expensive, or San Antonio, or Dallas. This is a state that's super big, super expensive. But there are a lot, there are a lot of Democratic donors in Texas too, and they have a lot of money to spend. And you know, if nothing else, you do want to wave your hand and sort of be respectful to the state before you go and ask these guys for money. Yeah, and there and there is a lot of Republican money here. Huge amount of Republican money here, and the fact is, Donald Trump is going to, you know, is one of the big stories from last week was how Donald Trump had raised so little money in comparison to Hillary Clinton, and how he had to get his campaign finance organization going. This is maybe a first step in that direction and fixing that a little bit. So one reason is just as Texas is just, you know, the national ATM for large political campaigns. And I guess we should pause and just note that even though people are saying, and even Donald Trump sometimes is saying. You know, I'm independently wealthy. I can fund my own campaign. These things are enormously expensive. And frankly, Trump is, in a less public way, not shown a whole lot of willingness to spend every last dime he has to run for president. Well, right. I mean, you should expect that a campaign is going to cost about, you know, about a billion dollars. You know, he's not going to spend a billion dollars. Right. So so he he does need to raise money despite the fact that his argument is I'm independent I don't I'm not I'm not beholden to to donors. Right. So another thing I think that that was driving this is a little more subtle and that is and 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 I'm not utterly convinced by this but a secondary reason that definitely contributed to this. So we have to remember that Donald Trump's last real contender for the nomination and somebody who is still held out his endorsement is Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Um, so it does make sense for Trump now that he is the presumptive nominee. And all we mean when we say that is that he's not been formally nominated by the convention, but despite continuing ch- you know, chatter about challenging him at the convention, he is the person that everybody presumes will be the candidate. And so it does make sense to come to Texas and speak to Texas Republicans and, and in a sense, almost kind of present himself. I think now if he wasn't coming to raise money, he probably wouldn't be quite as worried about that. But if you're going to be here to raise money, you might as well do some public events. And I think the, you know, the third reason he comes is that, you know, he does this the same reason he does he goes anywhere, and the same reasons that he does these big public rallies that have become his trademark. It's still earning him what we call free media. That is, the cable, you know, the cable television uh, stations still often cover these speeches live. I mean, I was. Now, you know, they've been criticized for this. It's happening a little bit less now. It's a little less newsworthy now that it's been pushed out by some other things. And I think that, you know, that the primary is a little more settled. 
Nonetheless, I was flipping around the news channels looking for something uh, over the weekend, and there was Donald Trump live on, you know, one of the kind of off-brand networks, the One America News Network. If you like it, it's fine, but it's it's not CNN or NBC, MSNBC or the Fox News Channel. It's a little bit more it's of a, a... It's a little racier. It's a little, it's a little racier. <laughs> it's a little We've talked foxier. about that. It's, it's Yeah, it's kind of Fox Fox squared yeah. in, a, in a way. Um, you know, Fox with a lower neckline. Right. Um, yeah, let's get off so, that tangent. So... You know, he, you know, when he goes and gives these big speeches, in a way, it almost doesn't matter where he is. Yeah, and in some ways, there's an advantage to actually being in Texas. I mean, the part of this is just asking the question, why is he in Texas? And then he gets the clips. And we were talking about the diminishing, there's sort of a diminishing marginal return to these things for most politicians, maybe not Donald Trump. But, you know, as the campaign wears on and he starts to focus more and more on the battleground states, presumably. And by battleground states, we mean those those states in the general election we know from the last you know, several presidential elections are more competitive. Unlike Texas, which we don't expect to be very competitive, you know, these these are races that are that are decided typically by a few points. Right. And really are what the outcome of the election usually end up hinging on. So right. when Trump gets to the point where maybe he's, you know, spending, you know, most of his time in places like Colorado and Ohio and Pennsylvania and Missouri and Florida, right? After a while, once you've done your sixth or seventh or eighth event in a, in a two-week span in Missouri, it's not news anymore. Right. And so for Trump, you know, I mean, the ability to... Now, of course, with Trump, anything could be made news. But, you know, part of this is by him kind of continuing to move around, in some sense, the fact of, again, even asking the question, why is he in Texas, puts it on television, and then right. we watch it, and then we talk about it, and we're talking and about it And now. there's a funny, you know, I, I think there's a funny little logical thing about that. You know, if you look at these, the two, these two points about Trump, the fact that, you know... Texas is an ATM and he gets the free media. Those two things are a little bit linked in the sense that he's become fairly dependent, perhaps, on this free media model until he raises more money and can actually launch a more orthodox campaign and pay for more and pay for more media that he needs. Right. So like what? So then this leads to what is uh, interesting about this whole affair from the perspective of Texas politics? Because, frankly, I went and sat through most of. I mean, it watched and enjoyed most of those two Trump speeches that were that I found on on the internet and saw a little bit of that one live, and they were pretty standard Trump fare by now. He didn't do anything crazy out of the ordinary, but you know, just the usual mixture of you know counter counter heckling the hecklers and you know talk about heroes. You know, it was a lot of the same well, campaign you, you said messaging. At one point, it seemed like he might have thought he was in Indiana. Yeah, he talked a lot about about the. Lou Holtz and, and some of his other Indiana sports Bobby endorsements, Knight, so. Bobby Knight. So yeah, it was you know it was that it was it was the usual kind of odd experience of watching Donald Trump. It's odd and still can be mesmerizing is the wrong word, but it can be a, you, you know you, it's it can be hard to turn away in some ways. Um, but the Texas the the elements that were really sort of interesting had less to do with what Trump said and more to do that. With some of the things that were said by one of the people that introduced them, that was one of his uh, was doing the introducing the lieutenant governor Dan Patrick, Um, and and what Patrick had to say shows us some interesting things about the intersection in this moment between national and state politics. So let's uh, let's let's hear some audio from Dan Patrick. We have worked so hard, everyone in this room to elect Republicans in Texas in almost every office. Today, out of our 254 counties, 
141 do not have one Democrat elected because of you. We do not want them to get a foothold. Donald Trump's going to win Texas, but not by two points, not by five points, not by ten points. We want to send the Democrats packing forever. Donald Trump will be the change agent that you've been praying for and hoping for and wishing for and working for your entire life. This is the election. If you have anyone who's a friend, a family member, a co-worker that says, you know, I don't know, here's what you tell them. You're voting straight Republican ticket in Texas and sending Donald Trump to the White House. That is a... Uh... Dan Patrick at his at his rabble but rousing best, I think. And there are lots of other things in there where he said lots of really rude things about Hillary Clinton. And he was only spoke for three or four minutes. He actually got a lot in there. So even in that clip, there's a lot that's interesting. What strikes you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting watching him sort of navigate this task of attaching sort of this controversial national candidate, Donald Trump, to the state party ticket, which, you know, for all accounts has been pretty successful. Yeah, right? as Patrick himself says, we're kind of we're cranking here. Yeah, I mean it's it's really interesting and in, I mean I, you know it's hard. I mean I think it's really interesting and it's, and I'm still kind of working out how to how to how to say some of this. But I mean, on the one hand, you're sort of saying, you know, we need to make sure that we don't give the Democrats a foothold, but we've been so successful and this guy's so great. It's like, well then why are we worried about giving the Democrats <laughs> a foothold? You yeah. know. Why are we even talking about this? Exactly. And it's sort of like, you know, Make sure you vote a straight, you know, when I ask you, you know, what are you doing in November? It's not the first thing wasn't voting for Donald Trump. It was vote a straight Republican ticket. And you can almost put in parentheses. And that includes Donald Trump, you know. So it was very it was it was I mean, Dan Patrick is very good, you know, as a very good politician. And but I mean, there's sort of slipping back and forth between, you know, kind of what he's saying, what he's not saying and kind of the comparison of these things was was very interesting. Yeah, it's almost I mean, he's doing he's doing what a good surrogate does right. at the state level and that he's he's doing the work you know on the he's working on the problems from both ends without actually well while kind of concealing what the real problem is so on one hand he's he's reminding trump supporters who may be there simply because they're attracted to trump and they may be republicans but they may be disaffected republicans right. that are attracted to trump reminding them trump's a republican vote straight ticket so that you know, and that's speaking to this subterranean or barely subterranean concern that Trump at the top of the ticket could hurt state legislative candidates, judicial, you know, other candidates on other parts of the ballot that are Republicans. But he's also saying, right, to other people, so the people kind of not in the room in some ways, you know, hey, make sure you still show up. Right. Make sure you still show up and you vote straight Republican ticket. Right. right. We are, you know, we're Republicans, we're successful, and this, this can't. This can't get in the way of that. Right. Donald Trump is a change agent out there. We don't want him to be a change agent here in Texas. Right. I think, you know, and then sort of another sort of kind of interesting kind of thing about that is, you know, Patrick is, is you know, the real bona fide conservative, uh, really second only to, to maybe Ted Cruz, I would say. Probably Greg Abbott, but only because more people know who Greg Abbott is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I tend to think. Yeah, I think we probably think a little bit differently about that. I mean, I think you're right that 
if we look at the numbers, the proportions are probably pretty close. It's just that Greg Abbott, being governor, he benefits from the symbolic stature of the office. And so he's naturally just more well-known than the lieutenant governor is. But you're right. I mean, but I, but I do think the way I think about that is if you're the Donald Trump campaign and you could say, okay, I want to I want to prove my, uh, my, you know, I want to have stroke with conservative voters in Texas. Right. Who do I want more than, you know, who are the top three people I want in order? Well. Ted Cruz. You want Ted Cruz. But that's not you're, happening. <laughs> you're pro- that's not happening. You probably want Greg Abbott. And then you'll settle for Dan Patrick. But it's a pretty good settle. Definitely. Right. I mean, you know, Dan Patrick is very popular and was the candidate of, you know, both evangelicals and Tea Party and Tea Party Republicans when he ran for lieutenant governor. And, and speaking to your to your point earlier about you know him you know Trump coming to Texas and kind of shoring up his support in the land of Ted Cruz. You know if you can't get Ted Cruz, why not get the guy who just won statewide with a, much of the same coalition? Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's and, right. And make that case for you. Um, you know, so I, I think it, it to finally kind of talk about this in Texas terms. You know, we, you know, we and lots of other insider people have talked about uh, the question of what is, you know, it's kind of, it's almost sinister. What does Dan Patrick want? Yeah. You know, lots of talk about Dan Patrick wanting to run for another office, either to run for governor to challenge Abbott or maybe even challenging Cornyn to, for U.S. Senate. And he's unequivocally denied that he's going to, you know, challenge Abbott right. on multiple occasions. Now, again, things change. I hear Marco Rubio is running for the Senate again. You he know, changed his mind. Changed his mind. It's okay. People change their mind. We're all human beings here. Um, but this is sort of a question. I mean, it, it's interesting watching Dan Patrick proceed through this electoral cycle where, you know, he was quick to endorse Cruz. It was hard not to see a Cruz event without like kind of, and you just kind of look around and say, where's Dan? Oh, there's Dan Patrick. Right. You know, he'd be sort of, there There he is in the background. And yeah, was, there was definitely, and, and often in the foreground. Often, yeah. Often <laughs> he was often the, standing, right? I mean, he had a spot. For he a liked tall to stand guy. Right at Ted, at, on Ted Cruz's yeah. right, right shoulder. Mm-hmm. I think he moved back a little bit after he wore that ugly plaid shirt. It seems like he got relegated, but then they brought him back in. But then, you know, once Cruz was out of the race, he was pretty quick to endorse Trump. I think he was the first of the statewide to go and endorse Trump. Uh, you know, I mean, in addition to that, he's been sort of one of the the most outspoken critics of sort of transgender bathroom rights uh, right. in the country. I mean, he's really been out there a lot, and it does sort of re-energize this question of to what end? What's is, he doing? Is this for another political office, or is this something yeah. else? Well, and I think you know, I, I think when you see him with Trump, there's a there's a couple of different things going on that you you have to notice. And we were talking about this earlier. I mean, one of them is that there's a real affinity here. Mm-hmm. Um, between stylistically as much as substantively between Trump and Dan Patrick. They both come out, they're both invoking this kind of conservative form of populism that resonates pretty well in Texas. Obviously, for Trump, it's resonating in lots of other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. But that that strain of, it's, it's an interesting circa 2015-16 version of populism that we see throughout the history of Texas. Sometimes it's on the left, sometimes it's on the right. This is definitely a, a bit more on the right. And, the, and it resonates, and they really resonate when it comes to things like immigration and cultural identity. Though, as you kind of imply, there's other ways in which Trump and, and Patrick are very different. And that is why Patrick helps Trump. I mean, Trump is, seri- is, is definitely a much more secular candidate, shall we say, 
than Dan Patrick, who we hear in the intro of the podcast, you know, talking about Christianity and his right. His, his, fa- his famous line is that he's a Christian first, a conservative second, and a Republican third. And right. he's that's he's made that his hallmark. And that's really pretty good for Dan Patrick. But they're also similar stylistically, right? I mean, in a sense, at least historically, right? They're both. I mean, Dan Patrick's uh, sort of was a was a talk radio host right. before he moved on to the Texas Senate. He understands how to transition as a media personality into a political personality in a way that Trump has obviously done, you know, one could say very successfully up until this point. Yeah, in some ways, that's what makes it this very contemporary form of populism that's rooted in non-political celebrity, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we have to, we can't really leave without saying that there is something else that could be a little more limited, but still interesting in terms of Dan Patrick's profile, and that is Dan Patrick becomes lieutenant governor at a time when that office, which had traditionally been known, historically anyway, as a very influential and powerful office in Texas politics, had been something somewhat in eclipse. And we don't want to go too much into this, and there's some of this, and lot, there's lots have been written, lots has been written about this, but a lot has been written about this. But during the last decade and a half, as Rick Perry became a very unprecedented long-term governor, he's in the office for 14 years, which nobody ever really imagined anybody would be governor that long. The office was occupied by Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst, who was not particularly politically, he was sometimes politically aggressive, but he wasn't politically skilled in the way that the the historical figures we think of as as influential lieutenant governors more recently Bob Bullock if you live in Austin that big museum that's named after him is a testament to how effective Bob Bullock was as lieutenant governor um, before him Bill Hobby um, and so there there is a piece of this that I think we saw going in that when both Abbott and Dan Patrick assume the governorship and the lieutenant governorship, respectively. It's been an interesting question to see how much of a reset there was going to be. And I think we have seen Dan Patrick unambiguously, whether he wants to do something else or not, is very interested in infusing more power and influence into the lieutenant governor's chair. Yeah, that's definitely that definitely seems right. I mean, I think one of the things that's almost been surprising for if you're focusing on this particular question about the power dynamic between the governor and the lieutenant governor um, you know, again, and sort of this historical reset has been the degree to which I think Patrick, to a large degree, is, you know, outmaneuvered Abbott. I mean, I think Abbott is, you know, still very strong. He's doing fine. He's doing fine. But I mean, it really is the case that Patrick's personality is being sort of a powerful figure with a microphone and sort of his sort of natural political gifts. He has really sort of made himself or and is working on making himself, you know, the primary player in Texas politics in a way that, you know, I think it's not surprising, but it's amazing how quickly I think it's happened. Yeah. And, and, and I think that Abbott is still, do you know, I don't want to, I would, I wouldn't overplay that too much to the extent that I think Craig Abbott has done a good job of defending the position of governor. But I mean, when you see Dan Patrick, I, th- I think your point is hard to deny when you see Dan Patrick on the stage, introducing Donald Trump like that, he seems very much in the moment right now mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, even if Trump loses, it's hard for me to imagine that that's going to hurt him. I wouldn't even cross my mind that it would, honestly. Right. His brand so, is that strong. So that that's what uh, that's what we make of Donald Trump coming to Texas. It, we, we wind up talking about Don, Dan Patrick and the lieutenant governor without too much of a, of a reach. So thanks all of you for listening. Have a good week and we'll see you next week. 
The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project and the Project 2021 Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin. 